All right, our final week of study, week seven, titled God is Within Her. I love that psalm that was on our title page. Our big idea as we look to sum up our study is that our greatest need and greatest joy is the nearness of God. It's the best big idea because we just recycled it from week one. Our greatest need and greatest joy is the nearness of God. So as you guys recall from earlier in the study, we live in the already, not yet, right? We live in the already, not yet of our greatest joy and our greatest need. We have that joy, that need met because we have the nearness of God through the Holy Spirit indwelling in us. Yet, it's, it's not yet fully realized. Why is that? Because we are still waiting for all things to be made new. So in this last week, did you sense God's nearness? Were there times this week that you knew that God was dwelling with you? I did. I thought of, you know, during worship on Sunday, I felt God's nearness. I felt his presence when I was reading the Bible with a woman this week. But the truth is, I also felt like an exile. I also felt like I was a sojourner, like Adam and Eve. I felt at times that God's nearness is not yet fully restored. My oldest had some kind of sickness yesterday. I felt that. Matt and I had a miscommunication, and I felt that exile. (laughs) But also, Matt and I had a girl from our youth group in Colorado who died. We live in the exile. God's presence has not fully been restored. God lives with us, but not to the extent to which he one day will. And that is what you saw this week in Revelation. So here is the quick context on the book of Revelation. First of all, did you notice there's not an S at the end of the word Revelation? (laughs) I just realized that. John is giving us an image of the last scene of the play. He is showing us what is going to happen in the last days. This is what you would call the epitome of a spoiler alert. This is how God will restore his presence on earth. This is what we have been building up to for seven weeks. I heard it said that it's on these pages of Revelation that we see a kaleidoscope of Old Testament promises. Isn't that poetic? A kaleidoscope of Old Testament promises. You guys saw so many repetitive words, right? We saw gold and fine materials and crystal seas and thrones and water and fire. We see that the instructions that were given atop Mount Sinai in week three, they weren't just made up on the spot for the Jews. But as we studied this, we saw that they were actually pattern off of a reality in heaven from Mount Zion. This book of Revelation is often approached incorrectly, and I put myself in that category. I felt very intimidated a couple weeks ago when I started prepping this, because I thought, how in the week, in one short teaching of the women's Bible study, am I supposed to explain the book of Revelation? How am I supposed to explain the the seals and the weeks and the end times and the dragon and who's that woman and and the swords? and the I mean, I have no idea what any of that means and I wasn't even going to try and fake it till I could make it. But then I found out that that actually would be the wrong approach to this part of God's word. See, what we often do is we think that all that, that this book is is a secret code that is supposed to be unpacked telling us exactly what is going to happen at the end of the world. 
But Revelation is actually not primarily about speculation as much as it is an invitation for preparation. So as we dig in to conclude our study, I want you guys to go with that posture, not primarily of speculation. We actually aren't going to talk that much about the warning signs of the end of the times. It is an invitation for preparation for when God will fully restore his presence. This book is about a prophet, a New Testament prophet named John, probably the same John who wrote other parts of the Bible. And what he's doing, he's bringing a message of warning and comfort to seven churches. It's a letter that was going to be circulated. So it would start in one church and they would send it around to the other six churches. And uh, what he is doing, he's on this island of Patmos. He's been exiled there because he's being persecuted for preaching the gospel. And John gets a vision from God showing us what will happen in the future. But what John wants is for his readers overall to be encouraged to remain faithful. He's going to use this vision to say to them, you can do it. Be faithful amidst persecution. Stay true to the end because of this hope that is coming your way. He is inviting the Christians to remain faithful and hopeful in God's promise to make all things new. This, this revelation does not just tell them about what the future will be like, but it is awakening in them a hope, a hope that will prompt them to stay faithful to Christ, and that is what we want it to do for us this morning. So we're going to look at three points, the first one being uh, focusing mainly on chapter one of Revelation. What we, see, what we saw in chapter one this week is that the nearness of God calls us to be faithful. So for the sake of time, I'm, I'm going to just quickly uh, go over some of the verses that we read. And I want to start with this. In chapter one, we read a really vivid description of the Son of Man. I'm going to read starting in verse 13. It says, One like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many, rot of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His face was shining. His face was like the sun shining in full strength. Can you imagine seeing a sight like this. I mean, the following verse says that when John saw it, he fell down as if dead. So I think this amazed him. Well, why did it? Look, listen to the splendor and the radiance of this description. I mean, it says that he's clothed with a long, a long robe. So what do we start connecting there? There's our great high priest, our better high priest. And he has a golden sash around his chest that reference to gold and to um, deity. The hairs of his head were white, showing his infinite wisdom. And his eyes were like a flame of fire, a fire that can pierce and that can bring change. And his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And I thought about, could that be speaking of the fact that, that Jesus, our great high priest, was also the great lamb who put himself up on the brazen altar and that he withstood the fires of the cross. And as we read in other places like Hebrews, it is that obedience 
that granted him this reward in heaven. His voice was like the roar of many waters. Doesn't that kind of sound like Pentecost from last week when the Holy Spirit anointed his people and that sound rushed over that young little church? That is the sight that John sees. And where was he? Well, from verse 12, we see that this son of man was standing in the midst of the lampstands. And in your homework, I wanted you to connect that those lampstands were the seven churches. We've connected that earlier this semester, that we are called to be the light of the world, just like the lampstand within that dark tabernacle was supposed to light the way to God. Metaphors all over the place. I hope you like metaphors. (laughs) Here he is. He's in the midst of the lampstands. That was a big, fun, aha moment for me. John is saying to this church that is likely being persecuted, you can stay faithful because this radiant son of man, this victorious son of man is in your midst. You may feel like you're alone. John probably had the right to to talk about being alone, right? And he's saying, you are not alone the victorious son of man is in your midst. Therefore, you can be faithful. You can stay true to the end because the slain yet victorious lamb of God is with you. What does God's nearness mean for us as the churches or as the priests? Well, we see that this charge is true for us. He's among us. And will be even more so for eternity. We have been building up quite this long job description through the last couple weeks, right? As we've studied the priesthood, we have been building up this job description. We are intercessors, mediators, witnesses. We are the tabernacle. We are the living stones. It's just gotten bigger each week. This is a really big purpose. And I want that to excite us. But the reality is that there's also days where that could feel really overwhelming. We have a huge job to do that we see throughout the big picture of the Bible. And Jesus is saying, he is going to be there with us. He's going to be in our midst, no matter what we are facing as his priest. He reminds us throughout Revelation that we are his image bearers, taking us back to Eden, reminding us that as his image bearers, we are called to do two things. We are called to reflect him to a broken world, and we are called to represent him, to do his work from afar. In Revelation 1, Jesus was called the faithful witness, and we are being invited to be his image bearers in that way. Be a faithful witness and represent him. So let his nearness strengthen your faith as you close out this study. His presence is with you, but it will be so even more in the future. Secondly, the second point, the nearness of God calls us to be conquerors. Listen as I read the first part of Revelation 21, the first five verses. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adored for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. 
He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. This presence of God here is restored. What we have been waiting for this whole study is what we see in Revelation 21, that God's presence will be fully restored. What was lost in Eden is restored in these verses. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And how close is God actually going to be? I wanted you to actually see that in your homework. He's so close that he can wipe a tear off of your face. That is how proximal he is to his people. There's no more tears and there is no more pain. What God's presence means for us today, what we need to take as an application from this semester is that God's presence means comfort for us. And we, even in good seasons of our life, need this comfort. Do we not? This week, I have needed God's comfort at different times. I spent most of my time writing this talk this morning having a hard time moving forward because I was uh, carrying the grief of one of my best friends who had the anniversary of her dad's terminal cancer one year ago. I couldn't, couldn't focus for the life of me this morning because that grief is so felt. A couple days ago, I prayed with a woman after church on Sunday who is stuck in a really lonely marriage. A lot of grief there. She feels completely invisible and completely stuck. A couple days before that, I was the nurse of a patient who has leukemia for the third time. Guys, she has seven kids. She has leukemia for the third time, but her hope is in heaven. She knows whose she is. And she knows that someday God's full presence presence means full healing and full comfort for her. I have cried tears this week for much lesser things. I have felt overwhelmed and dropped a few tears. I've had friends cry because motherhood is hard and we don't have a clue what we're doing. (laughs) I had a kid cry because he scraped his knee. We live east of Eden, remember? We live east of Eden, and that is exile, and often exile is filled to the brim with great losses or filled to the brim with many small losses. But our future shows in Revelation 21 that our husband God, as he was introduced in this chapter, will not leave us here in the land of exile Instead, we read in verse 5 that he says, Behold, I am making all things new. What does he mean by that? Well, he says the former things have passed away. What are the former things? From week one, what he's referring to is the curse. The curse will be gone in the new heavens and the new earth. The curse over our work 
and over creation, that curse that makes us not want to submit to our husbands and the curse that makes labor hurt, childbearing hurt, that curse will be gone. And in that same time, Jesus will be making all things new. He describes us in chapter 21 as being a bride and therefore himself as the groom. What we see is that our hope in the future is this great intimacy with God, also fitting into the already not yet. We are already invited to be this bride, to not keep God at a professional distance, but to let him come near and to be our intimate husband. But that, that intimacy, what that should do is it should give us this hope and this strength to be more than a conqueror. It says in verse 7, John says, The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his son, or I will be his God, and he will be my son. What heritage is he talking about? Well, it says the verse before that, To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. He is inviting us to be more than conquerors, to receive life, to receive refreshment from him in our current season and in this side of glory. He's telling us that we can be conquerors, not just over, uh, over sin, not just being a conqueror over temptation, but I think also he's saying you are conquerors over unbelief. How about being a conqueror over despair? The things that we are regularly faced with as we live in exile. In Romans, it says, In all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Jesus Christ our Lord. What we will have in our, in our eternal home instead of tears and death is that we will have the springs of the water of life and we will have it without payment, just like our salvation. When you see those words waters, go back to Eden and remember how that water, that garden was well watered by four rivers. Think of the cleansing waters within the tabernacle, in the laver. And maybe even think about the woman at the well who met Jesus and who was told that there is a water of life, a, a water that we can drink of and never thirst again. In our eternity, we will receive that water of life. And in our eternity, we will get the reward from being conquerors. So let's let the nearness of God now enable and equip us to be conquerors over whatever it is that you're feeling like you should probably just give up the fight against. What is it? Maybe it's apathy. Maybe you just don't care all that much about the things of God right now. And we are being invited to be a conqueror over that. Maybe it's despair. There is just too much loss. There is just too much heavy work, heavy relationships, too many pains, and you just want to throw in the towel and just go through the motions. The invitation here is to realize the nearness of God every day, to acknowledge the Spirit of God living in us, 
that invites us to both remain faithful and to be the victors, to claim Jesus' victory in our lives. And third, the nearness of God means glory for us. John is telling the churches, hey guys, the reality of your future is that of glory. The reality of your future is glorious. That that is what these churches were supposed to understand and that was to motivate them and encourage them. And it is the same for us. What John tells us, what he sees in this vision is that the glory that we will see in heaven will be unhindered. I'm going to read a couple verses in chapter 21, starting in verse 10. And it says, And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. And it goes on, and there's these amazing details of what this new Jerusalem will look like. Our imperishable hope, as we talk about on Sundays, is in this new, Jer- new Jerusalem. This is the glorious city of God. It's also kind of like the garden of God, and it has the glory of God. So we've talked several times this semester about how God was going to restore Eden. But in this week, we actually see that he does more than just restore Eden. See, what we see actually in verse uh, 27, it says, nothing unclean will ever enter this city. Well, we know that that wasn't true in Eden, right? Even Eden and all its beauty, all its beauty and all the practical needs that it met, the priests there met, messed up on something because they let something unclean enter it, right? They let Satan into that temple, that garden of God, as they were slacking on their job as a priest. And that led to destruction and to exile. But we see that the new Jerusalem will be even more than the new Eden because nothing unclean will ever enter it. We talked earlier this semester about how the tabernacle was going to be like a portable Sinai. Remember that? So that God's glory could move with the people, came down from Mount Sinai and went into the tabernacle. We talked about how both the tabernacle and the temple were almost like a mini Eden. How they pointed back to when God was walking with his people. We saw also, though, that the tabernacle and temple were a shadow of the heavenly things. But we read here that in our future hope, there is no temple. There's actually no human constructs needed at all to house God. Well, why is that? Well, that's when you go back and you say, wait, why was that temple needed? Well, it was to house the glory of God. But we read this week that glory was going to be everywhere. Why was the tabernacle needed? Well, that was where heaven met earth. That was that point of intersection for God's people. Well, we read in Revelation that now there is heaven on earth and the tabernacle will not be needed. Why else was there a tabernacle in the temple? Well, that was where sacrifices were made. That's where that whole system was carried out with the priesthood. That will not be needed because the slain lamb of God has triumphed over death forever. 
Furthermore, in this chapter, if we looked closely, we would have seen that when they went and measured this new city, that it measured to be a perfect square. Anyone catch on to that? It's a perfect square. Where else did we see that this semester? You have to look closely to see it, but it was the Holy of Holies. It was a perfect cube, that innermost room where the Shekinah glory of God filled. So what does that mean for our eternal hope? It means that the glory of God is going to fill all of New Jerusalem. It meant that no longer God's glory would be confined to a back room hidden from people, but that it was breaking out everywhere will be the holies of holies. His glory will be everywhere. Essentially what John is describing in these last two chapters is this new home for his bride. He is bringing his bride to the top of a mountain just like other prophets got to see this great vision from tops of mountains. And he says, hey, glorious bride, image bearer, this is the home I have for you. Our hope on this side of heaven is that Jesus is there preparing this place for us. The God that we have studied this semester, we have seen him as both transcendent, right? Ruling from heaven, but we have also seen him as very eminent. How has God shown himself to be eminent, to be near to you in the study? We have seen his eminence as he guided his people through a desert, as he moved into the back room of a humble tent. Then we saw him donning human skin and living as a man and then indwelling in us as the spirit. But ultimately we see God is going to dwell with us in the new heavens and the new earth where he is so close to us that he wipes away our tears. And this description is our greatest longing. It is our greatest need. It is our greatest joy. And that is something that we've got to get clear if we want to remain faithful until the end. Our greatest need and our greatest joy is nothing less than this restored presence of God. And when we get confused about that, then we make quite the mess in our lives. When we subtly believe that we have other needs, I need closeness with my husband. I need a peaceful home. I need a savings account. I need an open floor plan, <laughs> right? We get so confused and maybe we don't realize that in our life, but we need our body to look this way and our skin to look this way. And I need you guys to perceive me in this way and see me as successful. I need to be liked. I, you, know, you name it. What is it that we start to believe, oh, that's also my greatest need. Oh, that would give me my greatest joy. But the big story of the Bible tells a very different story. And so very important that we understand This is our greatest longing. No longer will we live in exile. And no longer will we be sojourners, sojourning east of Eden, traveling through a desert, traveling, wandering through our 30s. 
we will be home in this new earth and in the midst of God's glory. And what is so neat about this is that this is even Jesus's longing. In John 17, it's called the great priestly prayer. And Jesus says to the Father, he says, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. What a sweet invitation to let our greatest longing line up with Jesus's longing that he took before the Father. So we should remain faithful. God's big picture should leave us in awe and cause us to worship. His promise to redeem and restore flows out from Genesis and can be followed all the way to the final pages of Revelation. So what do we do while we await restoration? A question we asked ourselves in week one. This is what we remember. As these scenes in Revelation fill our minds and our eyes, we remember that God is on his throne. Ladies, we can remain faithful. We can remain pure. We can remain on mission because God is on his throne. His plans cannot be thwarted. No matter how out of control life seems, no matter how uncontrollable that one person seems, no matter how vast your loss is, how deep your depression is, his plan cannot be thwarted for his people. He is in sovereign rule over creation in his plan of redemption and in his plan of restoration. His children cannot be taken from him. He is on his throne. He is the victor. He is seated there because his work is done. And that is why we can join in the prayer that John has at the very end of this book where he says, Come, Lord Jesus. Let's, let's pray that. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's believe that our hope, as it says in Titus, is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ.